Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. Well, good morning. We're going to be picking back up in the book of Mark. If you've got your Bibles with you, you want to go to Mark, the 10th chapter and the 13th verse is where we're going to be picking up today. If it's been a little while since you've been here, or if you're new to Sturgeon Bay Community Church, let me catch you up to speed. We are spending as much time as it takes, it's looking like about 18 months or so, to work our way through the book of Mark. We're going verse by verse, section by section, and just exploring what the book of Mark has to say and what we need to learn from that here in our 21st century environment. The Word of God is uh, without flaw, without error. It's good for all times and ages. It's profitable for doctrine and teaching and reproof and correction. And we want to make sure that we as a people are faithfully looking to the Word of God and gleaning from that. And that's part of what Sturgeon Bay Community Church is committed to doing. We believe that the Word of God has a transforming effect. It teaches us to love God and love others. And if we are faithful students of the Word of God, then we believe that we can learn from that and live it out in our world today. So that's what we are in the pursuit of doing. The book of Mark was the very first of the Gospels. John Mark was a student of Peter's, but even more notable is that John Mark's house is the place where the Lord's Supper took place. John Mark, as a young man, got to witness Jesus saying, this is my body which is given for you, this is my blood which is shed for you. Uh, he would see Judas leave to go and betray Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Later on, John Mark would bear witness as the resurrected Christ would appear in his upper room at his house uh, to those disciples, apostles who had been following him. Later, it would be at John Mark's house where Peter, when released miraculously from prison, uh, would come to the door and bang on the door. And he would, it would be that house servant that, that John Mark knew well would open the door, see Peter scream and close the door and run off. And maybe it was John Mark that went down to open the door and said, come on in, come on in. I don't know what she was thinking. But but this was the beginning of John Mark's experience with Jesus the Messiah. Later on, John Mark, as a student of Peter, would hear all the stories and all the accounts and hear about everything Jesus had said and done. As the Bishop of Alexandria later on in his life, John Mark would sit down to pen the very first of the Gospels. The shortest, the most unique of the Gospels, it stands alone uniquely. Uh, but the book of Mark is what we are studying. Throughout the book of Mark, there is a central theme that you want to keep in mind. At any time, if you wonder, I wonder why Mark would share that, I wonder why this was important, I wonder what the point is, at all times, the central theme of the book of Mark is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that's what we're here to learn and to study and to make application of in our own lives today. So that's why we are taking the time in the book of Mark. Thank you for being here today. Uh, especially those of you who'd probably rather be hunting. Uh, we're going to have a good time today, learn some things from the book of, 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 from God's book and uh, make application in our lives. So let's go to the Lord in prayer for just a moment, and then we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 27. Father God, it is an honor to be able to pick up your word and human voice and to be able to read that today and to hear the truth of your teaching, of your example, of your exhortations, your corrections. God, I just pray that we learn from this today, make application in our lives. I pray that the conversations that will follow 
in life groups as, as Jesus' as people gather for meals and for study and for discussion together. God, I pray that those discussions would bring, um, bring to life the lessons that you would have us learn and put into action on the smaller scale. So God, give me words of wisdom today as I've studied and give us ears to hear uh, the truth of the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. People were bringing little children to Him, that's Jesus, in order that He might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to Me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in His arms, He laid His hands on them and He blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He, uh, the rich man said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at His words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who could be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Here's what we're going to look at today. Um, We're going to look at like children. And then secondly, we're going to move on to gratitude and contentment are essential parts of the holy, hear me say, pious life. Those are the two things that we're going to engage this morning. Children were gathering around Jesus. There's a, a, uh, a comedian, Michael Jr. You guys familiar with Michael Jr.? Really funny guy, awesome, great storyteller. And I'm not funny like Michael Jr., so just you know, bear with me. But he tells a story, uh, and it goes like this. He said his son, who was about five or six at the time, came up to him and said, Dad, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be a surgeon. Michael Jr. is like, man, I was so proud. I'm looking at my son. He's he's making decisions in life. He's got his path laid out before him. He's thinking long term. He's planning. He's dedicated. He wants to make a difference in people's lives. And the little guy goes, or a dinosaur. (laughs) Children. Children are, are there before Jesus, and, and He's reaching out, and he's wanting, he's wanting them to come to Him and to gather around Him. And He even tells the disciples around Him, the apostles around Him, that uh, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like these little children. What is He talking about? Well, the things about children is that they're, there's an, they're impressionable, right? Uh, they're naive, certainly. Uh, they're innocent, optimistic, always ready to play, vulnerable. These attributes of children, it's also that they are completely dependent, completely dependent on their parents. And when good parents, godly parents, raise children in good and godly ways, kids know that they're safe. 
They know that they're loved. They know that they're going to be provided for. And they understand that anything is possible in their young minds. When I was, uh, when we were living in, in Texas, I had a really neat opportunity. Uh, and it was one of these places that looked like, uh, looked like this, right? Um, I got to spend a lot of time with Madeline because Kim worked way north, and, and we liked to be at the playground when Kim would come home in the afternoons, and we could meet at that one place. And uh, so I took Madeline there every afternoon, this enormous park that was behind our, our house there. And um, that area of the, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex where we lived was really neat because it was multi-ethnic, and I loved and desperately missed that because when we would go to the playground, there would be... Um, kids of, whose ancestors were Asian, whose ancestors were, were African, whose ancestors were Arab, whose ancestors were South American, whose ancestors were European. And so in this, in this place was the picture of the kingdom of heaven. It was so cool. And I love taking my little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, white-skinned daughter <laughs> over there, and, and she would stand and she would do this thing that kids do. And you know it if you've seen them at the playground. It usually goes like this. You know, they kind of, they walk up, you know. They start to smile, and somebody else smiles, and then what are they? They're best friends. And the game starts, right? And, and the next thing you know, they're playing, and it was great about this. They didn't all speak the same language. They definitely didn't all look the same. And they were all out there just playing. And after five or ten minutes, they're best friends. And Madeline come back going, this is my new friend. I don't know her name, but we're having a really good time. And the friend would say, like, it's, I like it the mighty too many. Oh, awesome, cool name. Have fun. You know, they go off, and they would play, and she'd come back with a new friend. This is, this is my new friend. Um... Um, okay, cool, go have fun. And they would play and they would have a game and it would be Chase or who's the captain or are you talking this time of the tube? And the kid can hear you way over there and they're waving. And they had great fun. And then when it was time to leave, there was the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and the sadness, oh, you hate me. We're going to McDonald's for a happy meal. Bye. You know, but it was so simple. You know, it was easy to make friends. They, they, they didn't understand things like, oh, we're from different classes or ethnicities or nationalities or races, so we have to be careful how we interact here or something. None of that existed. It was just the optimism and the beauty of being children. Christians, the kingdom of heaven is like children. Take down those barriers. Take down those divisions. With great optimism, anything is possible. Embrace the naive, take down the guards and the protections, and love people. A good, good father loves you and has called you his own. And all those others who are children of that king, of that very same father, we are part of a family. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And God has worked all of history, all of time, and all of circumstances together to pave a road to you so that you can be called a child of Jesus Christ too. And how beautiful are the feet of those who come bearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to share that with others. And so what we need to be doing, figuratively, of course, is just like those children is just kind of looking, you know, there's opportunities to be able to engage in a friendship and a relationship with somebody else because that's what we're called to be, bearers of good news. This is the relationship that Jesus wanted these people to understand. Now, but take a trip with me in your imagination for just a minute. Out of our 21st century American post-enlightenment, wealthy Western point of view, and let's look at the life of children in the ancient Near East. Um, in, the, in the ancient Near, I'll just leave that picture up for a minute. In the ancient Near East, here was the reality. 
six out of ten children would die before age 12. In peasant society, which is what Jesus was teaching, teaching in, in Galilee and Nazareth, that area, these people were poor. Many were slaves. Many were indentured bond servants to Rome or to, to, their, to their Jewish and, and Galilean masters. Um, most people were not healthy. They didn't have good doctors. All the good things about Luke, Dr. Luke, we want to say, uh, Dr. Luke was not getting a license in the 21st century. So they're doing the best they can, but understand that life in that environment is brutal and difficult and hard. And one of the great indicators is that six out of ten children would die before age 12. How difficult for us to imagine such an environment. But in that place, these children, even worse, were seen as possession. They were seen as property and even a burden, especially a female child. Because, you see, women didn't have rights back then either. So for a girl child, what it meant to that parent was they're just a dependent. They're not going to do anything for the family other than eat your food and live in your house and take up your space. And hopefully one day they'll be 13, 14, old enough to get married off, and maybe we'll get a little dowry. And so this was the perception that people had of children. All right, can you get your mind around it for a second? Do you see the frustrating way they had failed God's command to love their children and to see God as their heavenly father and, and children as a blessing from the Lord. They had fallen away from that, that teaching that they had been given in the Old Testament, in the law, and they had, they, had, they had become not the reflection of God's value system. So Jesus is correcting a value system too, saying the children are valuable, they're loved. And these moms were bringing kids to Jesus, hoping He would bless them. Anything they could do, that desperation of a mom, anything that would save my child that I love and I value. This, 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 the mom's POV, right? So the mom is bringing that child to Jesus to be blessed. And these, these disciples, these men, are like, get away from here. Kids aren't important. We don't, you're getting in the way of the real work. And Jesus scolds them, stop that. Bring the little children unto me. And He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The helpless needy, dependent, who recognize there's nothing in their own power that they can do that gives them worth or value, but the love of the Father is there for them. The love of the parent is real, and if they depend completely on Jesus, He will provide all their needs. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the picture. And when we grasp that, we as people need to be completely dependent on the love of, the grace of the Father for meaning, for justification, for salvation, then we've entered into God's way of doing things. And as we've said a hundred times, the kingdom of heaven is Jesus' way of saying God's way of doing things is like. And that's what was happening in that very moment. It's why in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, these words are so critical. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Or, or how about in Proverbs 6, uh, 6 through 19, the six things the Lord hates. Yes, the seven are abomination. Remember the seven deadly sins? He would, he would go on to, to specify what they are. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that are quick to shed innocent blood. Uh, hearts that deceive or devise wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who spreads lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. How could those things be acceptable to God's children, to God's innocent, dependent, loved, valued, important children? And so the message for the church is clear. 
do not divide or damage or suppress or hurt my children. Because while we look to little ones like this and say they have to be protected and loved and provided for, that's how God sees all of His children. And that's how we need to see His children too. Let's teach honestly. Let's love richly and fully. Let's protect. Let's encourage. Let's provide where there is need. And let's love like a parent those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fair enough? This is the message that Jesus was trying to get across to people on that Galilean hillside or Sumerian hillside, however you want to look at it. He was trying to get them to see people as God's children. The second half of what we want to engage today, really, though, it comes down to this matter of gratitude and contentment. And these are parts of the holy, pious, godly life. These attributes are the way we are supposed to live. Let's define them, and then let's look at some other examples of those in Scripture. Gratitude can be defined this way, the quality of being grateful or thankful. Grateful or thankful. Thanksgiving, right? We just had this great Thanksgiving. Did you have an opportunity as, as friends and family to gather around and to, and to talk about things you were thankful for? Does anybody else do that at Thanksgiving? Isn't that a lot of fun? There's so much in our life that we can be grateful for and thankful for. If we just stop and look at it and go, wow. But what's the thing that most of us do as people? What do we do? Well, we take them for granted. So it's important that we take time to be, to be grateful, thankful for the things we have. Now, the second part of this is called contentment. And this is the state of being satisfied. Now, say that with me. The state of being satisfied. You can do so much better than that. Ready? Your turn. It is the state of being satisfied. Okay. Internalize that. I wanted you to say it so it's internalizing. Um, that state of being satisfied with what we have, where we are, it's ease of mind and the wanting for nothing. I have no problem with being satisfied. I'm, I'm, I'm okay at it until I go to Home Depot and we walk through the tool section and then I realize that I cannot live without some of these things. And who in their right mind can live without a 12-amp belt sander? I mean, for heaven's sake, all the wonderful things this tool could do, I don't know how I've made it. And I'm no longer satisfied with what I have. So it's best for me not to go to the tool section of Home Depot very often, right? Do you have a tool section of Home Depot in your own life, though? Are there, are there times when, when you drive by and you see that house and your house looks like junk now because that's what I need. That would make me happy. That car would make me happy. That person would make me happy. That job would make me happy. Those clothes, those friends, that achievement, that... The, and we cease to be satisfied in the things that we have because we want more. We want other things because we figure that'll make me happy. True contentment, though, you see, is being satisfied with what you have and who you are and who you have in Jesus Christ. That state of satisfaction is a hallmark, a cornerstone, an attribute of Jesus' people. An ease of mind and a wanting for nothing. These two things, the gratitude and the contentment, really put us in the, in the, in the posture, in the value system of being Jesus' people. So let's read some other scriptures that speak to this, some other things that Paul is trying to explain to some of the different churches uh, who, are, who are struggling with this very thing, um, to understand what it is to be Jesus-like. The first one comes from Thessalonians. So he's writing to the church there in Thessalonica. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Does it say give thanks in everything? Hi, good morning. How you doing? 
Surgeon Bay Community Church, we have a little bit of this interaction back and forth. If you're uncomfortable, get over it. Here's how this goes. Is Jesus saying, be thankful about every single thing? Is that what he's saying here? No, no. He's saying, be thankful in what? Okay. In the midst of all circumstances, okay, seek thankfulness. Okay, Lord, um, this is tough. This is a tough moment. I'm having a hard time being grateful right now, but uh, show me the things that there are to be grateful for. A great quote. I love this so much. It says, if you can't be satisfied for what you have, be thankful for what you have escaped. This morning, we gather in heat, in comfortable chairs, in security. Uh, uh, we've got technology around, and, and uh, you know, we've got nice lighting that blinds the pastor, but you guys can see what's going on. Uh, you, you've had some of the best coffee in Door County. You drove here in cars on safe roads in a safe community uh, where, where you weren't having to duck bullets, and, and nobody's going to sneak in and arrest us here for worshiping in Jesus' name, and, and we have a common language that all of us speak fairly well, and, and in all these things, we ate good food this morning, or we'll probably eat good food today, or if it's not in your cupboard, it's available to you if you just ask people are happy to help. All this stuff is available to us. Wow! Thanks, God. This isn't the story throughout most of human history, especially for Christians. That's a lot to be thankful for. You can hear, you can see, you can walk. There's a lot to be grateful for. People in this room love you. People in this room will come around and support you if you need a hand. There's a lot to be thankful for. Look at all the things that could be but are not. So in the midst of all circumstances, be grateful. To the church in Colossae, Paul is writing a, a church which um, <laughs> most definitely had uh, persecution and pride. Uh, but he says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be, what is it? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving to God the Father through Him. To the church in Philippi, Paul says, be anxious in nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with, let your requests be known to God. In Psalms, David says, oh, give Thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That Psalm 107, it's so neat. Psalm 107, when you read through it and you hear that, that repose over and over again, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Then it goes on to say a few things. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. And that repose just continues to remind us in the midst of all things, be thankful. As difficult as it may be, be thankful. And so in Matthew, in Matthew comes this challenge. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, as we get to this point about gratitude and thankfulness, let's reimagine and refocus on that rich man who came to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus applauded him. He loved the man with love. The man had obeyed all the commandments. Listen, as far as the law was concerned, this guy had done a great job. He really had. He knew the law. So much so that Jesus loved him, saying, well done. 
well done, my covenant brother. The things that I gave you as God under that covenant of grace and law that you had been under before. You had kept the law. You had done it under the Lord your God. And now that Jesus is in front of you, what must I do to be saved? The man is asking. Remember, he's on his knees in front of a peasant rabbi. Don't get the wrong picture of this ruler. I think we paint it wrong sometimes, Savvy. I think what ha- agreed. Sorry, um, I think we get before we get before this picture sometimes, and we think of this haughty, arrogant, condescending. Hello, Daniel and Catherine. I'm a rich young girl. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on. This is humility. The man's coming before Jesus, getting on his knees. A rich guy on his knees in front of a peasant rabbi, saying, "What must I do to be saved?" The guy's really seeking, and Jesus appreciates it and loves this man, but with love. Jesus is going to cut like a surgeon right through all the junk and go straight to the heart of it all. And he's going to say, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. Oh, what? Anything but that. You hear me? He says, anything but that. And he goes away dismayed. Now, tradition has it that he did just that. He gave it all up and came to follow Jesus. Uh, we don't get to look to Scripture to see that affirmation, but the tradition throughout 2,000 years of, of Christian history has been that he did exactly that thing. Um, there is a tradition in our, in, our, in our Coptic brothers and sisters that Joseph of Arimathea, that rich ruler, had in fact given everything, even his own tomb, for Jesus, and then gave it all to follow Jesus and later be a martyr, broke, but giving his heart and his life and everything to Jesus. A beautiful picture of what it is to be completely given. Now, What's Jesus trying to show here? What's he trying to teach you? Well, Jesus looked around to his disciples. Let's hear from the scripture how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, hey, hey, children. Remember the children that are gathered around? And what did he say who, to be like to enter into the kingdom of heaven? We have to be like. And so how does he address them? Pretty cool. Did you miss that before? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Jesus at this moment, the ultimate teacher, the master order, the master of rhetoric, with the children around and the people around, he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? You see, at their point in time, totally unlike ours, you know, because we're very savvy, at their point in time... People who were rich were seen one of two ways, okay? Way one was that they were swindlers and crooks who had taken advantage of everybody else and had ill-gotten gain. All their stuff had come because they were dishonest, they didn't deserve it, and they kept it all for themselves, living lifestyles that oppressed everybody else and was opulent on their own. The other way of looking at rich people was that they are so good, so godly, so holy that the Lord of heaven has blessed them and increased their territory. They were reading the prayer of Jabez too, right? Oh, I get you. It upset you, didn't it? So in my painting, the sarcasm on thick, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you to hear something. We do that too. In our world today, we do the same thing. Look, they didn't have iPads and the internet and, and cars and electricity and fast food restaurants, but they were just as savvy as you and I. They were just as intelligent, just as sophisticated, just as smart 
as you and I. They had all the social nuances that you and I did, and they struggled with the same ideas of wealth and poverty and fairness and equations and, and who gets what. They saw it the same way. So when we listen to our news and we hear the 1%, and, and we hear the rich, wealthy Wall Street. And we, oh, they're evil. And then uh, somebody does really well, or you do really well. He's like, God's really blessing me. I'm just doing really good. I'm doing so great. And we live here in the United States of America. And let's face it, we're the richest country in the history of the world. The greatest concentration of wealth the world has ever seen is in us. Our poverty level is the opulence level of other countries around our world right now. We're the wealthy. Is God blessing us? Is God challenging us? You see, here's what happens. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. When we're content and capable in all that we have, when every need seems to be met, when we can swipe a card or throw down the cash or just go get it, we take things for granted and we fail to be grateful and we fail to be humble. And in that place, that place where Gratitude is diminished, humility is diminished, arrogance and self-reliance is, 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 is growing and blossoming, and we begin to want to hoard and protect our things and place our allegiance and our faith and our dependence and our love in our security, then Jesus is no longer as important to us. When our technology and our education is great and we lean on our own understanding, and we worship created things rather than the Creator, we begin to receive in ourselves the due penalty of our sins. Hear me say, the natural consequence of our incredible arrogance and our myopic reality view. You see, the value system of God's children, the King's way of doing things, is that like children, we recognize that we are utterly dependent on Him. And, and like children, hopefully, we take on some of these attributes of being, in a godly way, impressionable by our Lord, naive, beautifully, innocent, optimistic, always ready to play, always ready to serve, always ready to love, and vulnerable before our God. We'll be taken advantage of by the world around us. Hot dog. We'll be mistreated by the culture around us. Super. But we're going to be the children of Jesus, knowing that all we need and all of our identity and all of our values are in Him. That's the picture of being like children who can't do it for themselves but are dependent upon Him. So Jesus, as He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, God's way of doing things, is saying it's hard for the rich, for the wealthy, for the self-reliant, for the provided for, for, the, um, for the wealthy to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Because in our mind, there's two warring things. Just like for that rich ruler, Jesus cut right to his heart, and I think he cuts to ours too. And that cut goes to this place. What's that thing that you're unwilling to give up for God? That's a question. Think about it for a minute. What is that thing you're unwilling to give up for God? That thing that seems impossible I'm good with the kingdom of heaven and everything until we get to this point. And you start to run into that, into that challenge. Okay, put a pin in that. Let me share you, with you something that's kind of interesting. As we were reading through that before, I didn't get to do this in the first service, so you get special treatment, right? Um, uh, Jesus, Jesus uses this term. He says, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
Um, the kingdom of heaven is God's way of doing things. Agreed? Okay, I just want to make sure we're on the same page for a minute. It's not saying that rich people are bad and can't go to heaven. That's not, that's not the, the end story. So here the, here the end story. It's easier for people who are not self-reliant okay, to become dependent on God and appreciative of His grace. The more wealthy we become, the more stuff we pile on, and it's harder for us to enter into that point of really recognizing grace. In the ancient Hebrew language in particular, idioms like that were used, uh, to, I'm sorry, idiom, uh, idioms are uh, illustrations, ideas, metaphors, um, um, illustrations, that, that's an idiom, uh, and they, they would use them kind of in, in almost hyperbole, which is an exaggeration, to help make a point. And so when something like this happens, when you see an idiom used, always stop and go, okay, what's the bigger message that I need to be hearing at this? Um, there is a whole section of Talmudic, uh, ancient Jewish writing, called the Midrash or the Midrash. And in the Midrash, the Midrash, there's examples like this all the time, where a story or an illustration is given that uses real-life examples, real-life places in a fictitious story to teach a massive message. And it was always holy and it was important, especially for people who couldn't often read and write or go watch TV. And so what they were given were these things called the madrash or illustrations or idioms that were easy to remember and had profound message. Are we all together on that? One of the most famous idioms of that time came from the, the, the time that was known as the Babylonian captivity. This is when the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon. And when they were there, they were exposed to things they had never seen or heard or understood before. Animals and foods and ideas and literature and writing and stories and narratives they had never been exposed to before. But it gave them the opportunity to, to pen what's called the Babylonian Talmud. And what that was, the Hebrews had begun for the very first time to write down all the books of Moses and record their history and the law and the teaching of God exactly as God had given it to them. And because they were now being better educated in Babylon, they were able to be faithful about retaining their history and their stories and making sure everybody remembered them. And during this time, an idiom made its way into their way of talking, okay? They were in Babylon, new culture, they're learning things. This idiom went like this. Um, I'm sorry, I had to write it down so I wouldn't forget it. The idiom says, um, do not show a man a palm tree of gold nor an elephant going through the eye of a needle. You hear that? Do not show a man a palm tree of gold or an elephant going through the eye of a needle. And what it was trying to show is, um, don't suggest that men only dream that which is natural or possible, and don't dismay them by having them hope for the unlikely. This is this idea. Now, here's Jesus understanding all the idioms that the Pharisees and the rabbis and the teacher of his, uh, uh, teachers of his day are teaching people, don't dream the impossible. Don't dream of palm trees or gold in our world today. Don't dream of a money tree in the backyard, right? Right? You get it? You get it? You with me? Did I lose you yet? Okay. So don't dream the impossible. Dream the possible. Jesus is going to shatter all of that. He's going to go, no. Like children, dream the impossible. A surgeon or a dinosaur. A camel through the eye of a needle. By the way, do you know why Jesus said a camel instead of an elephant? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Do you think poverty, impoverished peasants in Galilee had ever seen an elephant? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. So why not talk about a real animal that they'd seen? What's the biggest thing most of them had ever seen? Jesus all right, didn't he? Kind of adapts it to their culture and teaches something they can work with. Hey, kids, don't imagine a brontosaurus entering through the eye of a needle. What the brontosaurus? 
You know, so don't, don't imagine a, a cow. Oh, okay, a cow can't get through a needle either. So what Jesus is saying, it's easier, it's easier, okay, for, for the poor, the children, to enter the kingdom of heaven because they understand their need. They understand dependency. They understand their depravity. But the wealthy become self-reliant. They become blinded by their wealth, blinded by their security, arrogant by the things that they have to make them comfortable and protected. And so at this moment, Jesus is really drawing that point to the people there. And as He calls this rich man to repentance... He is cut to the heart, and he's cut to the very question that I think we need to struggle with today. And that simple question was the rich man's question, and it looks like this. What would you be unwilling to give up if Jesus confronted you about it? What are you holding on so tightly that you're unwilling to give up? Daniel and Catherine, as you guys come up to play, just, just kind of start filling the space here for a minute. We're going to get ready to go into a time of prayer as a, as a congregation, as a people. Let's think about that question. Of all the things that are in your life, are there things that you have said, maybe unwillingly, this is the most important thing to me, and Jesus can be number two, but this is number one? Can you... Can you look across your life for just a second and see where that may have become your reality? With, with your heads bowed, with your eyes closed, just, just focus in on yourself for a minute. The kids aren't going to run off. Don't worry if the spouse is getting it or not. I just, want you to, I just want you to focus in on this for a minute. Is there anything in your life, children of God, that's become more important provides you more of a sense of purpose and security and meaning than Jesus? Stay in that thought song is going to play, I want you to stay in that thought. God, are you number one? Or if I place something else in front of you, draw your attention to the screen for just a minute. Humility and gratitude are closely related because they both point to a value system. Humility and gratitude. You see, these are the postures that Jesus was asking of that rich man. Humility, humility he had taken in the form of kneeling before Christ, submitting himself with a legitimate question before him. 
gratitude, I think he was struggling. He was struggling because both are a value system. And listen, our decisions are made based on value systems. That man had come to a, a, a fork in his road. He had to make a decision. He had to decide, do I follow Jesus or do I stick with the mammon? You cannot serve both. This is a choice. You can enjoy and steward wealth. But if it's your love and you're unwilling to give, to part, to, to surrender that to Christ, it's a path away from the kingdom of heaven. For heaven's sakes, it could be a path that leads you or others away from the gospel itself. It could lead your children away from the gospel itself. Instead of seeing the truth of Jesus Christ and hearing the gospel that will transform hearts and minds and lead those children one day to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if we as people, as parents, as friends and neighbors are too busy worshiping our things and making it first, then what is the Bible that people read in us? That path needs to shift, that all things come second to Jesus. And like children, we are completely dependent on Him. And the stuff which we leave behind and become somebody else's anyway, that stuff is simply there for us to steward. Decisions, brothers and sisters. Humility and gratitude are closely related to that value system. So back to prayer. With heads bowed, with eyes closed. Oh God, are our values in line with the kingdom of heaven? Are we hoarding? Are we spending? Are we valuing? Do these things line up with what you've told us about loving you and loving other people? Father God, we are so blessed as Americans, God. We're so fortunate. And we're so ignorant about it. God, during the season of Thanksgiving and, and preparation for celebrating the birth of Jesus, Lord, I just pray that you would bring into all of our hearts a sense of awareness. Lord, a sense of humility that recognizes this season is not about getting the best deal it's not about giving or getting the best gifts. It's not about eating the best food. But, Lord, it's about remembering all the things that we have to be thankful for. God, forgive us where we're selfish and we're ignorant. God, help us to be genuinely generous people. God, that we share our resources, our time, our talent, our treasure with the people around us in ways that demonstrate a humility and a gratitude. Lord Jesus, let our church be known as a place where the children of God are living authentic, Jesus-centered lives. Lord, we know it's a process. It's a journey. I pray that in each one of our hearts, though, today is stirred some conviction so that we can better love you, better respect you, better honor you. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us, your children. And thank you, God for all the wonderful freedom and liberty and safety and security that we enjoy. Let's give thanks to you, Father, rather than taking it for granted. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our Redeemer. 
and all God's people say, Amen.